Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm thankful that you're tuning in today. Today I'm joined by Danny Foley, and Dan and I are going to be discussing fascia training. So what is fascia? What does it do in the body? And how can you train it? And what is the impact on human performance and health and longevity physically? So this is an amazing episode. I wish I could have talked with Danny all night about this because we really hit some awesome points and I know you're going to love it. So make sure you check out everything on Danny's website and his social media page at well, they're linked below. Enjoy. Dan, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man. Uh, no, man, I appreciate you for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this this talk, especially after we uh, just wrapped up that preliminary discussion there. Yeah, for sure. For people who might not be familiar with you and all the amazing stuff that you do in the realm of human performance training and that sort of thing, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely, man. Yeah, so I just... Uh recently relocated to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area down in Texas um, after spending about six, seven years in Virginia at Virginia High Performance. Uh, my wife and I, Nicole, just kind of felt it was it was time for us to, to take on a new set of challenges, change our scenery up a little bit. I had also been in Virginia for my entire 32 years of life. So for me, it was, you know, kind of uh, just looking to switch things up from a personal lifestyle as well. Um, but yeah, man, since we've gotten down here, it's been, uh, it's been really fun. I've had, uh, a lot of, of different things to adjust to the, uh, traffic patterns of, of DFW are, are very, very high on that list. Um, but I'm, I'm coming, I've come into a place called basic methods, um, which is in Addison, Dallas, Texas. And it's a really, really wild place, man. Uh, Ryan and, and Kendall basic are the, the owners. It's a private sector facility and, uh, you know, it, it, it was funny, man, because when I went out there for, for our meeting, Ryan was the first person to hit me up when I was moving down here and they work predominantly with severe spinal cord injuries, paralysis, quadriplegics, severe TBI, head injuries. Um, you know, a lot of, of metabolic disorders as well. It's truly, uh, you know, the, the most difficult type of work that any of us can do. And, uh, there's just a very unique sense and feel and energy to the people that are in that building and, and kind of the things that they're doing. And it just, it fit very well with my, my approach to things. So we pretty quickly kind of put, put some plans together, you know, linked up in a partnership. And now I'm actually literally right in the process of, of launching our initial program, which is going to be the athlete restoration project. Um, and this is going to be dedicated for, uh, predominantly retired professional athletes, but also to include, you know, people just kind of, you know, struggling with chronic pain and complex injuries. And, you know, so for some instances, people who maybe didn't have a lot of success in the conventional rehab um, setting, you know, we want to take those things on. And, uh, and I think that, you know, the combination of what I'm bringing after my seven years of working predominantly with the Navy SEAL population, you know, a lot of injuries and a lot of complexities to that world and and with what they're doing with the severe TBI concussion and, and spinal cord injuries is bringing together a very unique product. Yeah, I would say so. That is certainly very unique. And, you know, you just mentioned that you worked with very high level individuals there in the Navy SEAL population, and they are some of the most active, physically demanding types of roles that you can think of. But as a result, they also take a lot of abuse. So I'd imagine that your training for, you know, a population like that has to be effective because that training can literally mean the difference of life or death for some of them. 
but it also has to be friendly enough to them that they feel good afterwards. Because if they train so hard that they feel awful afterwards, then they're not going to be able to do their job. Not imagine the same is true for athletes that you work with or different patients in the neurologic population as well is you need to find a way to challenge them, but not push them so far to the point where they can't do basic things that they have to do day in and day out. Yeah. I mean, it was, that, that was very well said. Um, we had a tremendous opportunity at BHP and I had a, a tremendous opportunity there. I, I loved every second of my time there. Um, but we had the unique opportunity to, uh, you know, work with these men and women in the, in the private sector. So there wasn't a lot of constraint from oversight, which is, is, you know, invariably a problem in that world. Um, we had the opportunity to kind of be creative and, and, and do things in a different way. So this will kind of tie two ends together here was, was actually really my impetus for all of the fascial based methodology and approaches to, to come, you know, thereafter. And, you know, I'm always, I always try to make it a very clear point that like, I didn't just reach and grab this fascist stuff and just start, you know, kind of making things up for the sake of it. No, I very much tried to apply what we were taught, what we were told to do, what's optimal. You know, I read all the literature and all those, you know, common books across all, you know, all of SNC and, um, and it didn't work. So it was, you know, we were, like you said, we were forced to kind of find a solution in that moment. And, uh, and it just led to this. And it was a lot of unilateral training. It was a lot of dynamic efforts. It was a lot of cross body rotational patterns. It was a lot of, you know, kind of intersecting, you know, certain cardinal planes and kind of trying to find new ranges of motion, paths of motion. Um, so at the end of the day, you can call it and term it whatever you want. But as I started to study more down that lane, um, particularly with the injury restoration and, and management, um, it just kept leading me back to fascia, fascia, fascia. So then I started to study that um, in an isolated manner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think we talked before about how it doesn't seem like anyone really understands fascia. A lot of people look at it and they say, oh, well, you know, it's a connective tissue. You know, you got it in different places. Like, you know, it's in your back. It connects like your lat to your spine or your glute to this or something like that. Uh, but for people who might not have heard the term fascia before, or maybe don't understand, you know, what it is, what it does and how it really functions in the body. Would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about fascia and what all you do from a training standpoint for it? For sure. So we'll start with like kind of a nice little layman's, you know, description with a bow on top, and then we'll, we'll dive more into to some of the detailed and uh, nuanced aspects of it. But at the most basic level, your fascial tissue is a, a single interwoven and, and global connective tissue that spans throughout the body. It's predominantly made up of collagen, water, elastin fibers, and then, you know, a couple other things. Um, but it has an ability to uh, distend in a way that, that connect, or I'm sorry, that muscle in general and other connective tissue uh, don't necessarily have the ability to do. So it's very important for structure, posture, general locomotion, movement. Um, and when we go a step further on that, um, the fascial tissue is, is not uniform throughout. So although it is, you know, loosely, completely interconnected, there is a different um, elasticity and density to fascial tissue depending on where it's located. So for instance, you have your, your uh, plantar fascia 
arch um, or your, your medial longitudinal arch. And then you have uh, fascia that essentially kind of covers the, the abdominal walls um, and, and really protects also the, the organs underlying. So the density and the, uh, the mechanical aptitude of the fascia at the arch is going to be much different than that kind of overcoat or layering um, within the abdominal wall. So it's a very versatile structure. It's a very versatile tissue. We also then have the sensory motor and the proprioceptive aspects of fascia, which I think more, even more recently, um, kind of since, you know, within 2018, 2020, uh, we're really starting to see a lot of research being generated about the, the proprioceptive acuity and the, the sensory motor functions of fascia. So to kind of recap, summarize that, it's a global connective tissue, head to toe, interconnected, but variable, versatile throughout. It has some level of contribution or significance for postural purposes, general movement, locomotion, structure, and then is also uh, largely involved in the sensory motory function, sensory motory function, and also the proprioceptive function, um, you know, as it's embedded with all of these free nerve endings and, and receptors. Gotcha. So, you know, as a result, since it's got so much importance with sensory motor and proprioceptive, things like balance, and I would say overall bodily stability are going to be very closely linked to your fascia systems as a result. 100%. And there's a term that's called interoception. And interoception is a fascinating thing to just generally dive into, get lost in a rabbit hole. In. Um, but interoception is essentially our body's perception of how we feel or how we are currently functioning, performing, or, or what have you. So this is, is largely a factor in kinesthesia or kinesthetic applications of training. So not, not only just limited to static structural balance, but also your ability to kind of connect and sequence movements together and, and you know move in different directions seamlessly. So your body's ability to detect itself in space and sense where your center of pressure is, where your center of mass is, et cetera, is going to be very, very predominant for the expression of movement that will follow. Gotcha. So it's not just important in static senses, but it's also essential in a dynamic sense to understand how to and understand the role of like fascial anatomy and function, I'll say. Um, would you say that the fascia function in dynamic nature tends to be more of like something that you would think of in like, I, I just want to use the term like a springy athlete, like someone who's really quick, or would you say it's more of like a stiffness thing, like something more rigid or how does the fascia properties itself, I would say, impact athleticism or movement in general? Yeah. So this is a, this is actually something that I'm continuing to, um, you know, kind of shape my perspective on and, and, and really understand completely for myself, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that the easiest examples to point to are what you alluded to first, and that's the typical connotation is that, you know, fascial based movers are going to be more springy and bouncy and, you know, have more elasticity in their motion, uh, whereas muscle movers are going to be more kind of bulky and heavy, but they'll be tougher to move or, or change course. I think that there's a partial truth to that. The, the limitation that, that I've, I used to believe that conclusively, but the, the, the thing that is kind of getting me to take a step back on that is that the, 
like the fascial tissue isn't necessarily producing movement. There isn't much of a contractile element to fascia, um, if at all. Where it becomes, you know, kind of a, a, a big player is in the, think about a slingshot being drawn back. So that elastic recoiling that occurs during counter movement, I would say that that is something that has more fascial uh, significance, uh, you know, than the other phases or the other pieces. But with that, I still find myself thinking that the primary thing that is different about fascial based movers versus non is their ability to sequence movement. So it's not just enough to be powerful or explosive, but it's the ability to connect stride to stride. It's the ability to connect the left side of the body pulling backwards as the right hand is coming forward for a cross or a jab, right? It's like you, you have to be able to put all that in action, you know, in a very rapid sense, which we understand agonist antagonist coupling. But I think that there's another layer to that too. Um, and then with that, being able to do so with different counter levers and with different moment arms. So with different foot positions, different center of pressures, segments work differently. So if that, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, I, I do. that's really what it boils down to. But again, I'll say that the versatility piece applies as well. You know, creating stiffness in the midfoot, we need to have more of that anti-movement or that stability factor of the, the, the arches and the fascia of the feet being able to stabilize and extend and hold in an isometric fashion just as we need to have our springiness in the windless mechanism during you know a sprint cycle right in the foot and even just going back to uh you know my classic example of the posterior oblique sling system between the glute and the lat uh interconnected by the uh thoracolumbar fascia i would imagine that essentially through that connection you're basically just winding the fascia and then it's a quick release, and that release gives you your energy and power from what I'm understanding. 100%. So if I'm looking at how someone moves, right, you uh, mentioned that some people are, I think you used the term fascial movers. So I'd imagine those type of in individuals would be people who can really, you know, disassociate the hip rotation and the shoulder rotation to right. cause more fascial winding and then release all that stored energy all in uh, one quick moment, um, you know, kind of going into like physics terms, essentially, I look at it as like, they're able to create a higher amount of potential energy and convert it into kinetic energy quicker, which for sport implications would be effective for, I would imagine, sprinting, power production, any kind of rotation, that sort of thing. Well, and I just thought of this as you were going through that, but you know, another part of the reason why I stepped down from like the, if they're bouncy and twitchy, their fascia, if they're not their muscle is trapeze artists, right? Like trapeze artists are probably one of the, if not the best demonstration of fascial uh, driven movement, right? Being able to bend and contort in all those different positions um, just requires a different, you know, uh, optimal anatomy, so to speak. Uh, but in addition to that, though, I think the other thing that people get really jammed up in is, is the terminologies, the things. So like one thing that I will get, you know, some crap on, and I actually don't get nearly as much as I expect I would, but uh, one thing I do get some pushback on is when I use the, the specific terminologies or, or the slings or the meridians or the lines or whichever one you pick. Um, and then finally, one time somebody was like, yeah, you know, that's cool. Except your, your uh, posterior oblique sling isn't a real thing. And so I responded back, well, do you use the term posterior chain? 
I mean, it's they're one in the same, right? Like it, it's a description of our anatomy because if we want to be super technical about it, every muscle joint and anything else in the body was just named by somebody at some point. So for my sake, I think that it's important to to define this that, you know, really it's more of a difference in perspective than it is in principle. I still do most of the same things that that a conventional you know, SNC coach would apply. I just view it in a little bit of a different way and therefore tweak my exercises in a different way. Fill me in a little bit on how you start to tweak your exercises, how you start to modify your sessions or movements and how you might even just structure a session where your goal is changing different properties of fascia or training someone's ability to utilize a fascial based movement system, we'll call it more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, so for sure. So uh, everything is 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 formed through the assessment and in the intake process. And, uh, you know, the structural side of this is is much easier to describe. So we'll start with that. So I have four basic uh, fascial line assessments that reflect uh, the anterior functional line, the posterior functional line, the lateral line, and then the spiral line. So essentially, it's these combination of lunges. We have an anterior coil lunge to a reverse lunge with an overhead reach. Uh, we have a lateral lunge into a curtsy lunge with an overhead reach. And then we have a single leg crossover RDL to a side bend. And then the last one is basically a, a split stance rotation with an overhead reach. So the reason why I have the um, the PVC pipe as a priority here is because three of those four lines actually originated the posterior aspect of the humerus, right under the back of the arm. So with that, if we want to engage that full length of the of the fascial line spanning from the back of the humerus to the heel, we need to have our arms active. So that's the purpose there. And then from there, we're just looking at multiplanar movement, right? Omnidirectional motion, loading into different ranges of motion uh, through different vectors, and the ability to sequence or uh, combine movements, right? So going from forwards to backwards, left to right, over to this side. Um, so in my mind, it gives me all of the same criteria and opportunity that I would get in any other organized movement assessment um, or protocol. And in this case, it gives me a specific opportunity to see the body the way I see it. So the coiling aspect in that first one that I mentioned is, is something that's going to be reflective in programming over and over and over again. When I teach a, a, a kettlebell split squat, I don't teach the athlete to just drop or descend in a purely vertical fashion. I want a little bit of trunk rotation, speaking to what you were mentioning about the lat and the glute. So for that reason, I should probably have it as a part of my assessment or intake process. So it's those kinds of things where it's, I'm not doing a totally different thing. I'm not having people juggle and balance with their eyes closed. We're doing basic structural movements. They're just defined in the way that I see the body. So for the training side, most of my training is going to be done barefoot. Um, I, I just think that, you know, again, similar to how the PVC pipe engages the, the uh, superior aspects of the fascial lines, not having shoes on helps to stimulate and engage the, the more inferior, the, the lower uh, parts of the, the fascial lines. I also think that there's a lot of benefits there just for the lower leg and the ankle, but to stay on track here, barefoot, very minimally, will we be in a bilateral sen uh, stance? We're going to do almost everything from either a kickstand or a B-stance, a split stance or a single leg. Um, and we are, again, going to prioritize 
planes and paths of motion and, and doing things with different resistance types, loading it from different vectors, I'm going to utilize all of those things before I just say, hey, we're doing a, a, a barbell single leg RDL and we're going to add five pounds every week for the next six weeks. I don't work with any developmental athletes. I don't have anybody from like 12 to 20. So for me, that stuff doesn't have a lot of purpose. When we're trying to optimize the ability to move and the ability to detect how the body moves in space, for me, those things don't have enough value. So I do things more like a contrast single leg uh, K, uh, crossover KV RDL. So rather than just having the, the straight barbell, we're using a kettlebell. Rather than working straight down, straight up, we're going to cross over the body to the pinky toe. And then rather than just doing every rep with weight, we will sequence that with weight, without weight, with weight, without weight. So those are probably some good examples for you. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. And you mentioning uh, at the end there about how you'll do a rep with weight, without weight. Like, to me, that's a perfect way to help someone explore a force velocity curve, right? Like, if you put someone in that uh, position, you're kind of describing their uh, single leg crossover RDL, and you do, you know, your first rep with a heavy kettlebell, and then you leave the kettlebell on the floor and you do it again explosively and then pick it back up. You just sure. hit you just hit high force or higher force at a slower velocity, and you can control that while then the next rep hitting lower force at a significantly higher velocity. Like you can literally work in a force velocity based approach to a more fascial based training system. And I also love that example a lot because going back to what we uh, mentioned earlier about posterior chain, posterior oblique sling, whatever you want to call it between the lat and the glute. Like if you think about it, that little crossing over kind of motion that you're doing as you're coming down, that rotation actually matches um, from the lat to glute connection, uh, winding the fascia, as we mentioned earlier. And I would imagine, I mean, I've used that in a few with a few athletes uh, in physical therapy before. And every time they tell me that like, you know, their butt is on fire with like a 30 pound kettlebell and yep. it's like, you know, minimal to no load is giving significantly more result, or at least the athlete feels like they're getting more result, uh, from that kind of training style. So I think a couple of underlying things there too. Number one, it forces them to be more conscientious during their actions, um, or during their lift. Um, you know, by giving some of these subtle details, this contrast application is just a good example of that. Um, but in addition to that, I cue that whether it's the crossover RDL or I'll do that for rear foot split squats, I'll do that for rows. Um, you know, I've, I've applied that in a couple of different ways, but that with weight, without weight, with weight, without weight, I cue that specifically that there should be no change in action and sometimes uh, speed as well between having or not having the weight. So what that's giving me a look at is their their reliance for either intrinsic or extrinsic stability. And you'd really be surprised with this. The, totally anecdotal. But the the stronger that somebody is in a conventional sense, so a guy that can or a guy or girl that can, you know, RDL or deadlift four to five hundred pounds, um, will struggle mightily with the reps without the weight. Right. And for this, it makes me think about how non-contact soft injuries uh soft tissue injuries occur, right? It's very rarely, if ever, because there was a force overload. It's because the force was applied faster than the athlete could respond to it. How, I, we've seen thousands of cases of people that can back squat 600 pounds. And then on Sunday, they go out, change of direction is unanticipated. 
boom, their knee goes. I mean, that's body weight, right? So it's not a force problem. It is a timing problem. And then from there, a sensory motor or proprioceptive problem. So those are the types of things that really generate my my overarching principles and, and philosophies for programming. So they just become reflective in those things. Right. And, you know, just thinking about a traditional strength and conditioning model, I mean, you know, think of like a, what I would call like a stereotypical leg day, right? Someone, you know, maybe 20, 25 year old goes into the gym, maybe they're an athlete and they're probably hitting back squat, leg press, leg extension, leg curl and a calf raise. Like that's just stereotypical leg day. Nowhere in there is there any kind of incorporation of rotation. Nowhere in there is there any kind of incorporation of these different positions that you mentioned. And nowhere in there is there any single leg work. And, you know, most of life, especially athletically, occurs on one leg, right? Every time you're running, you're basically jumping off the ground and landing on one leg over and over and over again. Um, so I love everything that you've explained on your approach here. Now, we've talked about a little bit about how fascia will help us from a force production standpoint, not because it's a contractile tissue, but because of its interconnection and the ability to wind. How about the role of fascia in the opposite, in deceleration or reducing force? If I'm an athlete and I want to slow down and change direction quick, where would fascial training or fascial subsystems come into that? Yeah, what a great question. Um, so I would I would probably argue that it's more important or significant in deceleration or eccentric mechanics um, than in concentric or production. And the reason for that is, is, is the dispersion of force. Um, so I'll use the foot and the lower leg for this uh, because it's definitely the best example. So when you start to understand the anatomy of the foot and you start to prioritize it in your assessments and in your intakes, you should quickly realize how significant the feet are for any anything training related, any training purposes. And you'll from there also notice um, that most people have very poorly functioning feet. Uh, from lacking intrinsic strength to lacking compliance to, uh, you know, reduced mediolateral control and being able to articulate their center of pressure through different, you know, aspects of the foot. It's a very sophisticated structure. But the main priority for, for the foot um, in terms of deceleration, change of direction, et cetera, is the ability to eccentrically load be compliant to the ground or to the environment and channel force to be distributed up the chain. So I think about it like this. If we have the big toe and then the four toes, we essentially have, you know, four or five channels for force. So we're sprinting, foot hits the ground. That ground reaction force is then channeled through the foot. If we have all four or five channels optimally functioning, then it's distributed. We'll just stick with the round number of five distributed five ways. So 20% across each part of the foot. That is going to give a better distribution of force coming up the calf and, and through the, the tibia and to the knee. Let's say now we, we've lost three of those, those five channels, leaving us with two. We have somebody who excessively pronates, has midfoot drop, and, and basically kind of lives in that you know foot eversion state where their pinky toe doesn't really touch the ground. Very common thing. So now we're working with a 40% capacity of what we optimally should. Or in other words, now 
two segments of the four, of the initial five segments of the foot are taking on 100% of that force. And as we know, there's no forces that are greater throughout the body um, than the, the ground reaction forces at top end speed, right? So a tremendous amount of force being put through two segments of the foot, then having to go through the ankle. To stay on track here, that is the precipice for shin splints, chronic ankle sprains, chronic knee problems, whether it's patellar tendonitis or if it's something more significant, a ligament, you know, chronic ligament sprains or damage, um, arthritis, all of these different things are due to the imbalance or the mismanagement of forces, right? I call them the itises. Those are, are very simply consequences of in or disproportionate stress management or distribution. So the, the role that fascia plays in this is, is quite complex, but, you know, to keep it basic here, it starts with that windlass mechanism, which is the full tensioning or locking of that medial arch. So for this to happen, we have to have flexion in the big toe. We have to have the heel suspended off of the ground and in most cases have some presence of dorsiflexion. So that full locking of the arch gives us the optimal, you know, transmission of force from big toe to heel to then Achilles and up. The fascial integrity there is the stability concept, right? So for there, it's that it's that ability to stabilize and hold. Then we have kind of our, our spiraling action around the, the lower leg. And in my mind, this is how the, the force is kind of rotationally sent throughout the body. So it's not just the linear you know mechanics of this, but also the ability to uh, accommodate for the rotations that are occurring. And if we have either you know overly compressed or overly stretched any of that lower leg fascia, um, you know, on the, the lateral aspect on the peroneals or more that posterior tip side on the medial aspect of the ankle. With those things, we want to have good symmetry and balance because if we are, you know, kind of pulled into, again, like just saying that external tibial rotation pattern, then we're going to be overly compressing and overly utilizing those medial aspects. And that over time will, provo will provoke something right? It's not going to guarantee an ACL or an Achilles, but something is going to happen if those things aren't accommodated. No, I completely agree with you. And I love how you broke it down from the sense of forces, because ultimately that's what we need to look at is force absorption and where the force is being distributed. And I've never thought about it like you explained of how, you know, say two or three toes aren't in contact with the ground, then all of the other forces that we absorb from the foot are going through the other toes. Um, I love that you brought that up. And that also explains in a fascia sense, one of the things that I'll do very commonly with athletes, there was um, an individual who just came in about a month ago, who was telling me about his ankle. I was kind of looking at him and uh, he had a hard time getting into what we call a subtalar neutral position and he couldn't maintain it. Um, so I am by no means an expert when it comes to tape uh, my tape jobs are atrocious, but they get the job done. They just don't look aesthetically appealing. Um, but I took some Luco tape, which is kind of like physical therapy duct tape if you've never used it. And I just kind of put them in a subtalar neutral position and just kind of yeah. locked them in there. And before versus after, he increased his vertical jump by two inches just mm -hmm. by doing one small thing that took like three minutes. 
by changing the way his foot absorbed forces and produced forces. Um, so this is one of those things that it's like, you know, not only is it effective from all the itises that you mentioned before that, you know, we see as pain and pathology, but it's also really effective from a performance standpoint, because if you can get this right, it can make a world of difference in a matter of minutes in some cases. No doubt, man. And I love, I love the intuition in those things. Um, you know, the other thing that I didn't really, that I didn't mention, but it's, it's very important here is also the, the concept of, um, they're called myofascial force expansions. And this is something that's uh, specifically a derivative of the, the stecos who were, you know, kind of pioneers in the fascial world. But myofascial force, force expansions are essentially a broadening of tendons. So it goes right back to that same channeling concept, right? Where with the Achilles tendon, if, if, if we have a very narrow and, and linearly dominant Achilles tendon, that gives us only that bandwidth for that predominant force transfer. These force myofascial force expansions are, you know, taking the tendon from being very narrow to kind of angling out a little bit. So having more surface area to distribute force means that we are more efficient in that process. So very simply, collagen fibers are laid down in the direction and in the places that they are broken down, right? In the, in the area that there is the most damage, we will you know, calcify and then create more collagen in that area, in that direction. So with that, that is the reasoning for a lot of this angulation, different patterning, different foot positioning, because we have to stress the body in those positions and the foot positions are, are quite bountiful. Um, but, you know, to that end, we want to try to build a, a, a robust, system that can accommodate for a lot of different directions because you were talking earlier about how you know almost all all of sport is played on one leg well not only that but it's all played on one leg with time constraints and with unpredictability right so there's never a i, I hate when people say like oh yeah well football is a sagely dominant sport like no it isn't man like it's nothing dominant it's everything dominant you, there's so much detail to it so those little things go a long way in my mind yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, as you just mentioned, sports and athletics are unpredictable. And one of my favorite things lately has been to watch multi-sport athletes kind of innovate and change the game in the realm of a sport, right? Like, I think back to a guy like Patrick Mahomes, when he first came into the NFL there, like the stuff that he was doing, like, you know, he would run up to the line of scrimmage and just kind of alley-oop it over. And it looked more like a basketball move than a football move but he's playing football. Like there are so many pioneers and innovators in the world of athlete athletics that you really can't restrict a certain sport to a certain plane of motion or certain movements because there's infinite and people are always finding new ways to move and new tricks and new cuts and that sort of thing. Well, and since you mentioned his name, uh, you know, I, I can't think about Pat or watch Pat play without giving a tremendous amount of credit to Bobby uh, Stroop and, and the APEC team um, for what they've done with Pat. You know, people kind of forget that Pat has trained there since he was a kid. You know, that's kind mm -hmm. of been his thing for a while. And if you look at their training, if you look at what Bobby does, it's a lot of the same concepts. Bobby and I are very similar in, in perspective and approach. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned, I actually tweeted something about this um, when he went down in that playoff game with that lateral ankle. And, you know, it, to me, that's a play right there where 99 out of 100 quarterbacks are down for six to eight weeks.
but the way that Bobby emphasizes foot position and center of pressure and change of direction and lacking pr predictability, there's not a doubt in my mind that he was, you know, able to kind of prevent himself from having a more severe injury because of the the robust training that had preceded it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You know, and the fact that he started at a young age too, right. You know, if you look at a guy in their mid to late twenties and they start training in their, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 year old range, well, plain and simple, that's, you know, 15 years, if not more yeah. of repetitive training through these motions of these systems, like, yeah that's going to have a profound impact long-term as opposed to someone who just started a week ago. So no doubt, no doubt. And, and genetics are always at play whenever we pull these names. I know that's the <laughs> easiest way for people to counter it is, you know, yeah, well you still, yeah, I get that. But you know, there, if we continue to undermine what we do, then I don't understand how anybody in our field could ever ask for or demand a pay raise. I mean, it, we, it's like we deprioritize ourselves with these things, but I think, the that you know pat and bobby are just a really good and and you know obviously a very public and and you know kind of uh limelight type of example of all of these things that we're discussing and how it does absolutely matter and how you know once we break away from we have to just get people to squat 500 pounds and run a 4 440 i i think we'll understand that there's so much more value in training through variation and versatility rather than just being these zealots to progressive overload and redundancy, man. I, I just don't, I don't agree with that anymore. I, I really don't. No, I completely agree. I mean, at the end of the day, we're building athletes or we're building movers. Yeah. We're not building weightlifters, at right. least not in the realm of athletics and human movement and human performance. Yeah, yeah. sure. If you're, if your goal is to be the strongest guy on the powerlifting platform, overload. Right. But don't expect to go out and dominate the lacrosse pitch right. as a power lifter. And if you look at all these sports, man, like and 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 you know, I've I've spent a pretty good amount of time watching watching the film on all these things, but every primary foundational motion in any sport has that reciprocation of the trunk, the disassociation of the pelvis and the and the ribs various foot patternings, never bilateral, you know? So again, like in my mind, I, I'm like, man, I think we're just really overthinking a lot of these things and we're doing exactly that. We're trying to create the, you know, the top power lifter, the top weight lifter. We, we just have to be, you know, a little bit more giving on what are the demands of sport and how can I emphasize that, not recreate it, emphasize it within a, a training setting. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Dan, I feel like you and I could probably talk about this all night long, but as we start to wrap up here, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything you want people listening to really take away? Well, no, I mean, to kind of keep it in line with, uh, you know, with the the meat and potatoes of this conversation, man, I think, you know, if, if there's any young strength coaches, practitioners, you know, listening to this, the the best unsolicited advice that I can give is just very much keep an open perspective and an open mind for the first four or five years of your career, you know, really saturate yourself in, in the learning phase and in the generalizing phase before you try to develop this specialty or this niche, um, you know, sample and experiment with a lot of different things, try them for yourself, try them with different athletes and, and populations, take, you know, very detailed notes on it. And then really just kind of allow the principles, methodologies, and the, you know, the, 
the systems, so to speak, to start to develop themselves. You know, I started out with all of this with a very clear cut intention of I'm going to be an NFL strength and conditioning coach one day. And then, you know, within the last three or four years have gotten to a point where I realized that there's way too much litigation and constraint and, and oversight in that world for me personally to be able to do well in it. So I had to pivot. And if I if I were so gridlocked on that, I, I would have missed the opportunity at VHP because I would have thought that that population isn't conducive to where I'm going. I would have missed the opportunity to come down here to Dallas because I would have been pulled to whichever city was going to be able to hire me or willing to hire me, you know, but then at the same time, I've continued to kind of keep my goal, my goal. And that's, you know, kind of what has formed this athlete restoration project where now we're, we are working with the pro athletes. We are working with, you know, high level individuals. Um, and we're doing so on a, on a, you know, on our time and with our methodology and approach, and we're doing it in this fascial based approach, um, you know, a neuromuscular approach that, that we feel is significantly more effective for specifically pain and, and injury restoration. So for that young population, you know, definitely just don't dismiss anything. Had you asked me at 25, what I thought about fascia, I would have told you it's BS, um, a phantom thing. You know, so just really stay uh, perceptive to that and, and really try to find yourself in, in, in difficult problems that you're forced to solve, because that will ultimately be the best teacher. Completely agree. Completely agree. And Dan, for people who want to find out more about you and check you out online, where can they find you at? Yeah, so I have all the, uh, the, the stuff now, um, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, so on Instagram, my personal handle is uh, at Dan Mode underscore Rude Rock. Uh, it's the same on on Twitter, I believe. And then our team page is uh, at Basic Methods, B-A-C-H-I-K Methods. There's a ton of great uh, coaches and trainers. They're doing amazing things. And then Rude Rock Strength is our our other Instagram handle. Um, and then our website is is just web uh, RudeRockStrength.com. And uh, we have a lot of content through simply faster so there's a good uh reflection there as well yeah and i think you've got like a con egg course and different things there as well too correct yeah that's our that's our fascial chronicle that's our fascial chronicles course um which came together beautifully uh, a lot of information in there so if this this conversation caught your interest at all you'll you'll definitely find some value in there and uh i'll throw a little discount code together for any listeners on here um you can put that in the show notes Awesome. We appreciate that. Dan, thank you again for your time, man. This was awesome. Absolutely, brother. Appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Broad Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.